Let's open our Bibles this morning or navigate on your device to the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are in chapter 2. We're looking at the church at Pergamos in verses 12 through 17. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17, that's our text. The topic, Jesus gives the believers in Pergamos a glimpse into their spiritual warfare when he tells them that Satan has his throne in their city. The title of our message, Glimpse of Thrones. Let's have a word of prayer. We love you, Lord, and thank you for this opportunity to sit under the teaching of your word. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be uh, warmed and excited as we understand you're speaking directly to us as a church and as individuals. Lord, we love you, and we always want to love you more. We know that we've been drawn to you by cords of everlasting love, by the pure love of Jesus Christ. We want to get more and more into that every day. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agree said, amen. Snakes, why did it have to be snakes? Well, Indiana Jones suffered from a fear of snakes. It was brought on from when he fell into a crate of them aboard the Dunn and Duffy circus train in 1912. He was trying to evade Fedora from whom the young Indy had taken the cross of Coronado. One of the first things I learned in college. (laughs) Jones frequently ran across snakes in his adventures most famously when he discovered the Temple of the Forbidden Eye, which had a chamber filled with snakes, including that gigantic cobra. That cobra, by the way, now lives in Adventureland in Anaheim, California. A lot of us, like Indiana Jones, have a natural aversion to snakes. In Pergamos, however, an unusual encounter with snakes was something that folks came from all over the Roman Empire to experience. Pergamos was the center for the worship of the deity known as Asclepius. He was the god of healing. In Greek sculpture, he was usually depicted as a bearded man holding a serpent-entwined staff. It's why we, to this day, represent medicine with the serpent on the pole. According to William Barclay, there was a medical school at the temple to Asclepius in Pergamos. Sick and diseased people from all over flocked there for relief. Think Stanford or Sansom Clinic or Loma Linda. The treatment, however, they received was unusual to say the least. The sick would spend the night in the darkness of the temple. In the temple, there were tame snakes. In the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it glided over the ground on which he or she lay. The touch of the snake was held to be the touch of the God himself, and the touch was believed to bring health and healing. As this letter unfolds, we'll see a snake. We'll see Satan slithering around the church seeking to touch believers, not for healing, but for deception. His strategy was to entice believers to compromise by adding pagan practices to their worship of Jesus Christ. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, refuse to compromise and you reveal Jesus enthroned. Number two, choose to compromise and you reveal Satan enthroned. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 12 and 13 at Jesus enthroned. Now, where do we get this idea that compromise is at the heart of the problem in Pergamos? Well, in verse 14, Jesus will remind us of what he calls the doctrine of Balaam. I don't want to get deep into it until we get to verse 14, but the doctrine of Balaam was his advice to the enemy of Israel that they send their women into the camp to invite the men to feast with them. The feasting involved both idol worship and having sex with these women. As a satanic strategy, it worked flawlessly to the detriment of the Jews. 
Pergamos was home to many temples in addition to the one to Asclepius. There was a temple to Zeus, as well as to Athena, as well as to Dionysus. In these temples, feasts were held during which the meat was sacrificed to the particular idol representing the god. If you attended the feast, you'd be participating in idol worship. Many of the rituals in these temples also involved immoral sexual acts with the priests and priestesses who represented the so-called God. And so what we're learning here is that this was quite simply the doctrine of Balaam all over again, seeking to entice the people of God to sin. And so verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Their angel, their pastor, their messenger was reading the entire revelation of Jesus Christ to them when they came across a personal letter. This, you have to understand how exciting this would be. There were other churches in these areas. We know, for example, the church at Colossae was there, the church of Hierapolis. Those are not addressed. And there were literally hundreds, if not thousands, of small communities throughout this area of the world. We don't know how many small or large churches there were. And so you're hearing this for the first time, and all of a sudden, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, is addressing you. And so, man, you know, the whole thing is important, but you'd sit up and take notice. And the first thing they heard was a particular characteristic from the description of Jesus in chapter 1. Jesus addressed them as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. References made to this seven times in the Bible, and the last two references are in chapter 19 of the Revelation, where it's made clear that we're talking about the word of God as it proceeds from the mouth of Jesus Christ. It's compared to a sword to remind us uh, of a couple of things. One, that we're in a fierce spiritual battle, and the emphasis on it being two-edged means two things. Number one, it means that Jesus can wield it to defeat enemies. But second, it also means there's an edge on the sword that can be used on Christians to slice away things that are harmful. Uh, We read in scripture that it divides between the soul and the spirit, uh, laying us bare before the Lord so that we can uh, walk with him in a more pure, harmonious way. This is perhaps where we get our expression, it cuts both ways. And so Jesus is letting them know that he is there to fight for them but that they also are going to be laid bare uh, and he's going to deal with them as well. Now, we always fight from victory, but we must fight. In this case, we fight by remaining separated from the idolatry and immorality of the world. That was what was going on in Pergamos. And so he says in verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The words your works do not appear in some of the better manuscripts from which we translate the Bible, but we understand that Jesus certainly knows everything about his churches and everyone in them. The real emphasis, however, in this sentence is on knowing where they dwelt. Jesus was familiar with the pressures of their environment. He knew they were besieged by the world. In fact, he knew something they did not. Their city was ground zero for the devil. Pergamos was Satan's earthly throne. We believe in a personal devil. There is a supernatural being, a fallen angel, who heads a rebellion of fallen angels against God. He is not, however, in any way equal with God, and there is no doubt as to his destiny. Satan is not omnipresent. 
He's not everywhere at once. In the first century, at the time of this writing, he was in the city of Pergamos. Strange city for him to be in in some ways. You would think that the devil would be in Rome or, or some other capital city like that where he could do more damage. Uh, today, people always joke around as, you know, about what city the devil might be living in. Las Vegas comes to mind. San Francisco comes to mind. Um, you know, he, he might be in Taft, for all we know. <laughs> He, you know, he's got a strange sense about him, so uh, we just don't know, but he has a throne somewhere. Uh, now, they held fast to Jesus' name. Anybody here from Taft? I know you are, that's why I said that, but anybody else that I might have offended? All right, praise the Lord. Uh, they held fast to Jesus' name, meaning the truth about him as it's revealed in Scripture which would include, of course, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh who died on the cross but who is risen from the dead in whom there is uh, salvation in no other name. It says, they did not deny my faith even when facing death for it. Antipas is given as an example. Nothing really is known of him beyond what Jesus says here. Church tradition says he was put inside of an idol that was in the form of a giant brass bull and then he was roasted to death. Uh, inside that bull. Faced with the pressure to deny Jesus or die, Antipas chose to die a martyr's death, and the believers in Pergamos stood with him at great risk. The believers refused to compromise in order to save their own lives. It was a powerful testimony that Jesus was enthroned. No matter who was the Caesar at that time, Jesus was king. Lately, with ISIS on the move, the world is seeing Christians being targeted for their faith in Jesus Christ. It's been going on for centuries. I think I told you last week that more Christians have been martyred in the last 50 years than were martyred in the first 300 years of the church. It's just that it doesn't make the news that often. But this one did, the beheading of those 21 Coptic Christians. According to an article by Jim Daly of Focus on the Family, those men beheaded were working in Libya because they were trying to feed their families in Egypt who are starving due to the poor conditions that exist there. The news media is not telling you that these ISIS members tried to get the 21 to deny their faith through torture before beheading them. And the news is not telling you that these believers sang songs of praise to Jesus while they were being beheaded. They did not deny Jesus. They would not compromise. They chose to reveal Jesus enthroned, giving their lives unto death. Now in verses 14 through 17, choose to compromise and you reveal Satan enthroned. We might someday be called upon to be faithful unto death, but persecution is not the only weapon in the devil's arsenal. Just because we're not being physically persecuted, uh, just because heads aren't being chopped off in the United States, it doesn't mean that the devil isn't interested in us. He always has the doctrine of Balaam to use against us. And so let's look at that beginning in verse 14. He says, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. We come to what Jesus had against them. It was the other side of the two-edged sword. Any happy feelings about Jesus writing to you uh, were gone because now you were going to hear what Jesus has against you. Now, actually, as a Christian, we would welcome this. 
But just on the surface, you know, if, if Jesus is talking, he says, hey, Gene, man, you know, Gene, you're doing this and you're doing this and this, and here's what I have against you. And it's like, oh, Lord, come on. But we need to know. And this is what they needed to know. Jesus said, you have there. They were tolerating folks who held to these two false doctrines. They themselves weren't adhering to them. They hadn't compromised yet, but they were compromising by letting these doctrines come in unchallenged. Balaam's story is recorded in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapters 22 through about 24 and 25. The nation of Israel was marching from Egypt to the promised land. No other nation could withstand them on that journey as they walked with God through the wilderness. King Balak of Moab was terrified. He sent for a Gentile seer named Balaam to employ him to curse the nation of Israel. Three times Balaam tried to curse them, but each time God overcame him and the words he spoke blessed them instead. Unable to curse them, but still desiring the money that Balak had offered him, Balaam counseled Balak on how he might yet stop the march of the Jews. Balaam told Balak to send the Moabite temple priestesses into the camp of Israel to seduce the Jewish men into celebrating their pagan feast of Baal Peor. The feast involved idolatry and sexual immorality. Balaam understood that the only way to defeat them was to entice them to sin against God. Then God would have to discipline them. The plan worked. The Israelite men worshiped idols. They had sex with the priestesses. Their compromise had devastating results. God sent a plague into the camp of the Israelites that killed 24,000 of them. Compromise from inside their camp had accomplished what no sword could have uh, done in conquering God's people. The plague was finally stopped when Phinehas entered a tent where an Israelite and a Moabite woman were having sex, and he ran them both through with a spear or a javelin. In Pergamos, the doctrine of Balaam was the encouragement that it was okay to go to the feasts. It was okay to participate in the rituals, even though it involved open idol worship. The believers were not doing it, not yet anyway, but they were tolerating those who advocated it, and that could only lead to compromise. Let me give you a contemporary example where the church is compromising or being led into compromise in an area of immorality. I understand the reality that many individuals, even among Christians, have same-sex attractions. Whether you have a same-sex attraction or an opposite-sex attraction, whether you were born that way or whether it's a learned behavior, God has established his rules, his regulations for marriage and for all sexual activity outside of marriage. Biblical marriage is monogamous, heterosexual. It's a union of one man and one woman that ought to last as long as they both live. Sex outside of this holy union is always sin, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, when he said, you must abstain from sexual immorality. Biblical scholar Dr. William Welty says of this word, sexual immorality, and I quote, the general word connotes a plethora of sexual behavior. This all-encompassing word contains within its meaning all concepts of non-marital, homosexual, and heterosexual behavior. And so a person who is attracted to someone of the opposite sex, who is not their husband or their wife, is sinning if they dwell upon it in their heart or if they act upon it in their behavior. 
Instead, they must abstain from sexual immorality. A person who is attracted to someone of the same sex is sinning if they dwell upon it or act upon it in their sexual behavior, and all such thinking and behaving is always outside the definition of biblical marriage. They must abstain from sexual immorality. Nevertheless, according to author and former megachurch pastor Rob Bell, the Christian church at large is, and I quote, moments away from accepting homosexual marriage. Speaking to Oprah on her Super Soul Sunday program, we laugh, but it, it really uh, uh, influences a lot of people. Bell said that it was, quote, inevitable that churches would change their position. Many already have. We would say that it is the doctrine of Balaam repackaged for our generation. Contrary to the current trend in evangelical churches, we cannot compromise and redefine biblical marriage because of what is happening in the world. We can't do it for those who identify as heterosexual, and we can't do it for those who identify as homosexual. I almost think sometimes that we are too tolerant of heterosexual sin because after all, what are you supposed to do? It's just out there. And you realize if you start with the definition of marriage uh, and sex within marriage, you start talking about things like adultery and fornication and, and whatnot. Uh, these committed by heterosexuals are just as sinful as homosexual activity. Uh, but we, we tend to concentrate on the homosexual uh, and we just need to be pure, period, and get back to God's original standard whatever our orientation, whatever our attraction. Uh, and so for all of us this morning, if I or you are in our hearts or in our actions committing sexual sin, which is sex outside of biblical marriage, we need to repent and get back to what God says. Uh, that is the exhortation for our church and every church. Now back to Pergamos, a big part of the strategy of Satan was to get the believers to attend these pagan feasts, to get them to compromise by being on scene for the worship of idols and to soften them up to accept the world's immorality. Now the fact is, there was some great eating going on at those feasts. The food was superb. This was the best food in the known world. In those days, you didn't go to McDonald's, you went to McZeus. There was no in and out, only dine and Dionysus. I mean, if you wanted food, this is where you went. Paul deals with these problems in the book, uh, in First and Second Corinthians. He says to the believers, hey, if you want to buy meat that's been sacrificed to the idol in the open marketplace and eat it, that's nothing. Eat it, just don't make a big deal about it. Don't be telling people about it. You know, go do that. But if you want to go to the temple and eat during the pagan feast, that's another story. Now you're going to stumble people and you're compromising and you're committing idolatry. So same situation that we're seeing here. And we need to understand also that these meals were not always religious events. All kinds of public and private feasts were held in these temples. They were the only venues where you could host a big shindig. Those of you who've planned some kind of big party, there's not that many places, and yet there are a ton of places in our culture where you can host a party and a lot of caterers. It wasn't like that in the first century. If you wanted to have a big shindig, you did it at one of these temples. 
It was one thing to say no to an invite to worship Zeus outright. It was another thing entirely to say no to your neighbor's anniversary because it was being held in the temple of Zeus and served by its priests and priestesses after the meat was openly sacrificed to the idol. Or to say no to a wedding or a birthday party or a retirement party. No was the only answer you could in good Christian conscience give. You'd have to forego the invitation and thereby subject yourself to ridicule and persecution. And so this was the problem in Pergamos and these who held the doctrine of Balaam were coming in and saying, hey, it's nothing to go to these feasts. The food is nothing. The idol is nothing. Just, you know, just go along with it. And the Christians up to this point were saying no, but they were letting this thinking creep into the church. Now, Balaam wasn't the only falsehood in Pergamos. Verse 15, thus you also have there those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. As much as I keep studying this, I keep hitting a wall, and, and all of the really competent scholars say we just don't know anything, not really, about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Uh, what we think we know comes from the, the title, Nicolaiti, meaning over the laity, but it could also have something to do with a guy called Nicholas. And so we just don't know, and so I don't want to add to our speculation. There is some indication here in the way the Greek words are used that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, whatever it was, was similar to that of Balaam in that it would eventually lead you into idolatry and immorality. And so whatever it was, it was a look away from the Lord and back to idols. Verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. If the world has crept into our church, Jesus said, repent. Repent of what exactly? Of our own worldliness? Well, of course, we should always do that. But in this case, because of what Jesus said next, I believe we are to also repent that we've allowed worldliness to coexist in the church and no one's doing a thing about it. Uh, there even becomes, we, saw, we see in the New Testament book of, again, 1 Corinthians, where Paul is dealing with stuff like this, uh, they had people committing open sin and they were happy about it because it showed what great grace they had. And so uh, the problem isn't just being orthodox. If you're orthodox and standing on the truth and willing to die for your faith in Jesus Christ, there are times you have to also talk out against what is false. And it's always better to just present the truth and believers will always recognize what is true as opposed to what is counterfeit but sometimes there's a place for saying, hey, this doctrine, this teaching, this situation is false, it's wrong, it's not biblical, it's heretical, it's cultic, whatever. And that's what they were not doing. And perhaps that's the first step towards compromise. Uh, you know, you let this, because we saw in the church at Ephesus, uh, when we studied that church, uh, Jesus said, hey, you're dealing with these guys. You, you, I hate the Nicolaitans, you hate the Nicolaitans. And you guys are making sure they're not around. But by the time we get to Pergamos, a few miles down the road, maybe 100 miles down the road, there's Nicolaitans in the church and those who hold the doctrine of Balaam and they're coexisting. And so it's a slippery slope in that direction. If the believers at Pergamos did not repent, then Jesus would come and fight against them, he says, and he meant those who had crept in and were being tolerated. Because there's a very strong distinction in these 
verses between you, the believers, and them, the false teachers. The believers should do something about them or else the Lord will come and do what needed to be done. Get your fight on is what Jesus was saying. If we don't fight, he eventually will come and have to do something. Now, that sounds great, but he doesn't want us to wait for him to step in. He wants us to teach sound doctrine and to oppose false doctrine. Uh, and, and, and we need to be about that. Now, we don't know what happened in Pergamos, but sadly, history teaches us that the church in later years did not repent, but instead got into bed with the world. From A.D. 100 until A.D. 312, Christians were subjected to all sorts of persecution under the reign of 10 particularly cruel Caesars. Yet the church grew stronger than ever, Instead of hindering the growth of the church and the spreading of the gospel, it was helping it. A change of satanic strategy was in order. By around 312, there was a struggle for power in the Roman Empire. A young man named Constantine prepared to engage in battle. According to legend, he saw a cross in the heavens and heard a voice say to him, in this sign conquer. Thus you have the so-called conversion of Constantine to Christianity. What probably happened was this. Substantially outnumbered, Constantine noticed a large segment of the population was not enlisting in either army. They were Christians. His so-called conversion provided him with an infusion of new troops who wanted to fight for this Christian emperor. He went on to conquer Maxentius in a pivotal battle, and when he marched into Rome, he was hailed as the undisputed Roman emperor. As it turned out, Constantine conquered more than an opposing army. In a small sense, he conquered the church. Not permanently, for Jesus has told us that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, and he always has a remnant of true believers on the earth. Constantine's so-called conversion, however, led to certain reforms in the Roman Empire that had disastrous consequences for Christians. For one thing, pagan priests and practices were integrated into the worship of the Christian church. Instead of wiping out these temples and their practices, they became Christianized. Anyone who submitted to water baptism was considered a Christian, and most people did that because being a Christian was now popular and expected. And so you had the beginning of this idea that everyone was a Christian. The church was free from persecution from the outside. Now it faced a devastating enemy from the inside, that was leading Christians deeper and deeper into compromise. And so verse 17, the Lord says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. As with all seven letters, this one had uh, and has application beyond the church at Pergamos because it says, if you have ears. And so it's for you, it's for anybody hearing it at any time in history. We are overcomers by virtue of being born again recipients of the resurrection power of Jesus to say yes to him enthroned as our king. We must also put overcoming into action by walking with the Lord in harmony with what is pleasing to him. Now, what's up with the hidden manna, the white stone, and the new name written on it? All of these seem to go together in some way. Well, let's start with the white stone. Archaeologists and historians agree that a person's name written on a white stone 
was used as a token or a ticket to gain entry into feasts and festivals. Adam Clark, for example, writes this, I quote, there is an allusion here to the conquerors in the public games who were not only conducted with great pomp into the city to which they belonged, but they had a white stone given to them with their name inscribed on it, which badge entitled them during their whole life to be maintained at the public expense. These were called tesserae among the Romans. A white stone was the wristband or the hand stamp of its day. It alerted the bouncers at the door that you were an invited guest. Where's your ticket? Hey, I've, here it is. And, and they would be able to go into that feast or that festival, or in the case of Roman champions, uh, they would just be taken care of wherever they went. The believers in Pergamos were refusing invitations to the various feasts and had become social outcasts, they weren't receiving white stones anymore. No matter, there's a greater feast coming, one that we are not only invited to, but we are the honored guests. At the end of the revelation, at the second coming of Jesus to earth, he hosts what is called the marriage supper of the lamb. It's Jesus and his bride, and that's us. We will feast with him. You know, the night Jesus was crucified, when he had his final supper with his disciples, he said, I am not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it again with you on the earth. And that's what he was talking about. He's talking about this future marriage supper uh, when we will again drink with Jesus and sup with him. That helps us, I think, understand the reference to the hidden manna. Manna, of course, was the bread from heaven that miraculously fed the children of Israel during their 40-year journey in the wilderness. The believers in Pergamos were passing up some great eating by refusing to compromise, but a meal was coming that would put all those meals to shame. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that I go through restaurant phases. Uh, Now, in and out is a lifetime phase, so that's not likely to phase out, but you know, some new restaurant would open for a while. It was Quiznos. I love those toasted sandwiches. Then Fratelli's and, you know, whatever. And I, I went through all of these phases. And, and there's just some good eating in the world, right? I mean, sometimes you make some, I mean, I'm, every now and then I make something that is so good I just want to die. You know, I think I don't want to, this is why nothing could ever be as good as this, you know? I made some salted caramel handheld apple pies the other day that I thought they're beautiful and they're tasty. I mean, this is it. I'm a pastry chef. And so so there's some good eating out in the world. And if you were in Pergamos, you were giving that up. You were staying home and having PB&J, you know, uh, or just rice or whatever. And, and, And people were feasting. They were having parties. They were living it up. And Jesus said, hey, manna, buddy, heavenly food. It's coming your way in the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be way cooler than any of these feasts combined. Will we only have manna to go with the fruit of the vine at our marriage supper? Well, if so, I'm okay with that. Manna probably represents the fact that we look forward to heavenly food, whatever is on the menu. And we shouldn't be sad that we miss idolatrous, immoral feasting of the world. Here's something that we need to remind ourselves of. Because it's sin, we think, you know, uh, that, that things aren't pleasurable, but the Bible lets us know that sin is pleasurable for a season. But it's that season that, that we need to concentrate on. And so the Lord is saying, hey, you guys, 
Don't yield to the compromise. Don't go down that slippery slope. Don't go into those temples. Don't start sitting in the vicinity of idol worship where all this immorality is going on. And one reason to to not do that and one way to overcome it is to remember who you are. You're a born-again child of God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and you are going to sit at a table with me, Jesus Christ, and feast with me, and that is going to cancel out anything that you might have missed. In fact, you're not even going to think in terms of missing anything because of what's coming. We are a people that must live for the future, and we do give up things in the present for the sake of the future and for the sake of our testimony. The new name on your white stone, it's a secret known only to you and Jesus. It's your personal identifier. Now, is it your new name or is it a new name that you use for Jesus? Well, it could be either the way it's uh, written here, but it's probably both. First of all, in the Old Testament, you remember Abram was renamed Abraham and Jacob was renamed Israel. Then in the New Testament, Jesus told Simon, I'm going to call you Peter. At the same time, we know of at least 700 different names or titles for Jesus in the Bible. And so it's not unthinkable that each of us could call him by a unique and endearing name. Think of this as a pet name that Jesus has for you and vice versa. Don't you have enduring pet names for those you love? A name that no one else is really allowed to use, sometimes names that no one else even knows. That's the idea here. Jesus has a new name for you. It's a perfect name for you. And it's a name that only he will call you by. No one else will. And you may have a name for him uh, that no one else can. And there's, it, it, he's just emphasizing the incredible intimacy of the situation of his relationship with you. Persecution or compromise, those are two primary strategies of Satan that he uses against the church. People sometimes ask, why does the devil continue to kill Christians since it only makes the church stronger? It's because he is a murderer, according to the Bible. He seems to have an insatiable bloodlust. Satan's not stupid. He's super intelligent. He knows from history, if nothing else, that when he kills Christians, more Christians take their place. People who kill them become Christians. And so it's a losing proposition. So why does he keep killing Christians? He's a murderer. He, he, in, in one sense, I don't want to absolve him of any personal responsibility, but you might say he just can't help himself. It's his nature to murder people. He's the greatest serial killer of all time. And even though the strategy is a failure, he still likes to kill people. And he'll continue to do it whenever and wherever he can get away with it. Christians are being killed right now for their faith in Jesus Christ. They always are somewhere in the world, but right now we see it more than ever. We're not being killed for our faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying there isn't persecution or problems, but we're not being beheaded on a large scale in the United States for our faith. And you know what that means? It means that Satan's strategy against us is to introduce the doctrine of Balaam in order to get us to compromise with the world. If we're not being killed for Christ, then Satan is trying to seduce us. It means the devil has something or someone that is trying to seduce us to turn to idols 
from God. There's no question he is doing this. The only question is, do I and do we recognize the attack? You understand what I'm saying? If you're not being beheaded for your faith in Jesus Christ, the devil is seeking to stumble you, to seduce you, to send some Moabite woman into your life, whether it's the sense of a real person or an idea or an ideal or an idol of some kind, to seduce you away from the purity that is yours in Jesus Christ. That is his strategy, and we need to at least be on guard for it and not be so uh, you know, silly to think that he's not doing that. Am I, are we really taking serious the lure of idolatry and immorality that will ruin us from within? Let's root out the doctrine of Balaam from our church if it's there, and more important, let's root it out from our lives if it's there. Let's pray.